1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is my colleague, Bruce Weidick. We're going to be talking about his book, Shrewd Samaritan, subtitled Faith, Economics, and the Road to Loving Our Global Neighbor. I see this book as a sort of dialogue between the two identities and communities that Bruce belongs to. Um, on the one hand, he's an economist committed to a rigorous cost-benefit analysis based on robust statistical evidence. Um, On the other hand, he's a person of strong Christian faith who takes seriously the obligation that his faith um, gives to him to help make helping the poor a central part of his life. Um, For the last 25 years, he's been a professor at the University of San Francisco, publishing a raft of influential research on what works and what doesn't in helping the global poor. He also founded an amazing master's program in international development economics that brings together students from all over the U.S. and around the world, teaches them economics, econometrics, and research design, and gives them practical field experience conducting their own research in a developing country.
0: So welcome, Bruce. Thanks for having me on, Peter. This is is great to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, so um, to start out with, um, why don't you tell us more about who is the book for, you know, the title definitely references the Bible and that's an important part of sort of what motivated you to, um, write it. But, um, is this only, only a book for, you know, Christians,
0: you know, um, the book actually has a pretty, pretty general audience, but, um, but a lot of it's targeted at people in, in the faith community who really feel like, feel like they have a calling to serve the poor in different ways. But, aren't reading all the journal articles or aren't necessarily up on the latest research, but yet they want their lives to have an impact on others. um, And they want to have some kind of meaningful engagement with global poverty. And so this book is really um, primarily geared to them. But, but again, I think it um, I I really wrote it for a large audience and, and I think it um, it's intended for a lot of different kinds of groups of people.
1: Yeah, I think I'd i say that it you know reaches out to a much larger group. I think anyone who you know takes seriously that that obligation to um to help the poor, um you know whatever uh faith or, or other ethical you know place that's coming from, I think this is a a great introduction to you know all the different economic research um on you know kind of what what works um what doesn't uh and all that. So so um why don't you tell us just sort of. Frame the whole thing. Um, you know, the title is "Shrewd Samaritan." So, what's the what's the shrewd part and what's the Samaritan part?
0: about? <laughs> yeah, the, well, most people are familiar with um, with the parable of the Good Samaritan, where there's this guy who's beat up and lying on the side of the road. It's a it's a story that Jesus tells, and then and then a couple of religious people go by and they just ignore the guy on the road. And then there's a Samaritan who goes and and helps this helps this guy who's been been attacked by um, by bandits and takes him to a little motel or something like that and um, helps patch him up and then pays the innkeeper some money to take care of him and then he then he goes on his way and and it's this parable that um, that has transcended I I, I think. Um, our society and um, and and even even people outside of Christianity are often often pretty familiar with it. We have these laws in the United States, Good Samaritan laws, that talk about the um, the that that try to protect people actually that are sort of um, that are helping other people in in need. So it's like this parable is really famous, um, and it and it tells us um, w- one of the sort of central ideas in the parable is that we're to help people that are um, anonymous to us that, that we don't necessarily know um, because we know that um, and and you teach game theory as well as I do, you know, that like in kind of repeated games with people that were, that were um, engaging in a long-term relationship with altruism is kind of in our self-interest, right? But this parable is kind of radical in that it teaches us that, that um, that our ethical responsibility isn't just to help those, who we have long-term relationships with, but this anonymous person in which we're playing, you know, as, as, as we might say in game theory, kind of a, a one-shot game. And then the shrewd part is from another parable about the shrewd manager, which, um, which is a much less well-known parable, even though it's in the same, um, same book in the Bible. It's in, it's in, um, in Luke. Um, but it's about this guy who, who is going to be fired for being dishonest. <laughs> and he goes out and he, um, and he, he calls in the the people that owe his boss money and he cuts them these discounts. Right. And then it's kind of a controversial parable because, because Jesus, when he tells it actually praises this guy for being shrewd. And he tells his disciples, Hey, you guys are kind of, you guys are kind of naive. You need to be more shrewd like this, like this guy in the parable, who's going to get fired. And yet gives his master's debtors a discount before he, he leaves his job. Right. So it's kind of this odd, weird kind of parable, but it has a point to it that we're not meant to be, to engage the world in a naive way, but in a, in a shrewd way. So that, so the book is based on those two, on those two ideas, which really kind of correspond to head and heart. Like if we're going to engage global poverty, we can't just do it with our heart. We have to do it with our head. And that's really kind of the premise of the book.
1: Okay. Great. Yeah. And I think, and again, you know, just, uh, uh, regardless of whether you take motivation from the Bible or somewhere else, I think that's a very, um, uh, a very general lesson and something, something that, uh, see, yeah, I guess, you know, see, seems obvious in a certain respect, but then kind of when you get down to, to practical, uh, practical things, um, people tend to, uh, tend to not, not sort of fully weight both of those factors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you give a, a framework um, for evaluating interventions. Uh, why don't you talk, uh, talk us through that? Like how do you, you know, there's lots of things you could try to do for the poor. You can't do all of them. So how do we decide, you know, what, uh, what works and, and what is worth spending money and effort on?
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, kind of the the basic framework that I, that I lay out in the book is, are these stages that people go through, I think in their engagement with global poverty and, in the book, I call them the six eyes. So, so the first is kind of a stage where we're we're um, basically kind of ignorant of of um, of other people and other cultures, mm-hmm. and that often is when we're young. But but many people just are never really exposed to um, to people in the outside world and their needs. Um, but that happens at some point with most of us, and then many of us reach this kind of stage of indifference where we know about needs in um, among the global poor, like global poverty and injustice. But but we don't really do too much about it. It's just not really on our radar. It's not important to us. Um, and then a lot, and this is, I think, like a lot of our students, Peter, that we deal with are kind of at a next stage, which is idealism. So they've rejected the indifferent stage. And then they're in a stage of idealism where it's like they they really want to do something, right? And it's just, just doing anything at all is better than doing nothing. And so often they just kind of do what feels good, or they take an approach that feels good, or they just believe things that feel like the right things to believe about the world. Um, But hopefully, um, and I think this, hopefully we kind of do this in our, in our economics classes and development and, and international economics and different things. But we, we hope that people go into sort of an investigation phase where they actually learn about the world and learn about In terms of poverty interventions, learn what kinds of things are effective and not effective and um, things that only just kind of give a warm glow. And then other things that actually are transformative to to people and actually genuinely helpful. And then that often leads to what I call the the fifth eye, which is introspection, which is um, kind of a phase where people, they look at the needs of the world and they understand them better through investigation, but then they they reflect on their own lives and the difference that they can make and the purpose for their own lives and how that lines up with the, with the needs of the world. And, um, and then when, when those come together, then often you have impact, um, where a person is actually able to, to exhibit a positive impact, um, on, um, for the in, in favor of the global poor or or different if, issues of poverty and injustice. And there's actually a seventh eye that I talk about at the end of the book, which is identification, where people actually learn to identify with the poor in, in different ways that I describe in the book. Um, but how we, I think what your, your original question though is more about like that investigation stage. Like how do we know, how do we know what's effective and what's not effective? A lot of this, I think like, at a personal level, for somebody who's not like a, a development economist, a lot of that is just is just being willing to learn um, and to listen rather than to talk. And and for example, with a practitioner, somebody who's working, say, for World Vision or Catholic Relief Services or organ- organization like that, is just to really somebody who's interfacing with the poor is to listen to listen to the poor and to see what the needs really are. And also to to hear about their own aspirations and dreams and um and visions for their own lives. Cause if we try to do something that's outside of that, it often doesn't work. Um a lot of development projects fail when we don't when we don't pay attention to to the poor themselves. And so even on a personal level, I think that's that's a really important part of investigation for a practitioner. Um, or even for a um, for a student who wants to go overseas for a semester or for a summer, to actually spend time where they develop relationships with people that are living in, in global poverty. But at a at a at a larger level, though, Peter, I think, um, I think that um, for for people like us that are that are development economists that are that are researchers and working in this area, um, hopefully our work, um, our impact work. Can inform policy, right? And so, um, so I think one of the ways that we figure out what works is through is through using like at a research level using experimental methods or quasi experimental methods, which you know correspond to the Nobel Prizes given in economics in twenty nineteen and and twenty twenty one, and and really kind of absorbing this literature and looking for patterns in this literature about what's effective and what isn't, and then um, and then beginning to lay the foundation for for policy and and development interventions from there
1: great yeah so i'd like you to um go into that uh, a little bit more in a second but maybe um before we do that why don't we talk a little bit about sort of the the part two of your book you talk about um in in a more broader scope like what causes poverty uh what are the sources of inequality and poverty both in in rich countries and then also what sort of leads to poverty traps in, in poor countries so um, maybe you could give us some of the highlights of that.
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, so in terms of, I, I think that like understanding what causes poverty is is super important, which is kind of why I put it earlier in the book. Like, I'm sure that a lot of people who who have picked up this book just want to rush to like, oh, okay, does microcredit work? Do cash transfers work? Do building schools work? You know, you, you want to get right to that point, but I think the foundation for understanding about effective interventions and about effective global action is is really understanding what are the causes of, of poverty and prosperity. And and really broadly the the um the the chapter on on poverty traps talks about um talks about different types of traps and different um that that the poor find themselves in and it looks at them in over two dimensions. One is um, are traps that are caused that are, that are more individual based traps. An example example of one kind of poverty trap that, um, that I use in, in the book is a, a, a savings trap. So for example, let's suppose that a, that a household is able to earn an income of 100, right per month, let's say. But then consumption needs are hundred, right? So the, So the household's never never able to save. Right? They they have to consume all of their income, and um, and because of that they're not able to invest, and because of the, they're not able to invest, there's no hope for their income being higher in order to create that buffer for savings and investment, right? And that's related to a credit trap as well, where where somebody doesn't have the assets that they need to secure a loan, like for collateral, um, but because they can't build those assets, they can't they can't access credit in order to improve their income. Right. And so, um, so it's just this vicious cycle, right. And and we have traps that are, that are similar involving nutrition, right. Somebody's malnourished, so they can't work very hard or very much or very productively. And so they can't earn a higher income. So they can't buy more food to eat. And so they end up in this, in this terrible cycle of a, of a malnutrition trap. So, um, but other, but other traps, so the, those are individually based traps, but then they're also what I call collective traps where um, in the economics in the economics jargon, um, they're called coordination failures. When um, you have something like in, in that in game theory we call strategic interdependence where I make my decisions based on how a lot of other people are making their decisions. So one example is education. Like if I'm from a, a, a place in rural Guatemala, like where the, where the nonprofit that I help lead, works. For example, the average education among males is, um, in, in the village where we work is three years and for the women it's two years, right? So if I'm growing up in a village like that, it's not going to pay for me to get a PhD in biochemistry, right? There's, there's nobody to, to employ me at least in that village. So I'd have to migrate somewhere to, to, um, to, to, to capitalize on that, on that level of education. And so we end up with societies that have a low division of labor where everybody's a generalist and then societies that have a really high division of labor, like, like San Francisco, for example, where education really pays off. Right. And so, so, um, so different regions, different places, different communities in the world can be caught in these collective traps that, um, that are related to education or investment usually investment doesn't happen where there's no investment. You know, it's kind of the opposite of what we teach our, our students in, in microeconomic principles where we say like, yeah, capital is most valuable where it's most scarce. But when you look around the world, that's not really true. Um, Capital goes where capital has gone and, um, and you have um, things like agglomeration economies. And so, so you see in India, very poor, for example, very poor, uh, very poor regions, impoverished regions, and then you see Bangalore and Hyderabad also, right? And so these, so, so the point of these these collectivist traps is that, um, is that because one person's optimal strategy or action depends on what other people are doing, there's a role for for the state or there's a role for outside actors to kind of coordinate people to a higher collective level of investment in, in the economy. So that's one dimension is individual versus collective. And then on another dimension, you have poverty traps that can be either um, either involving external constraints, like there aren't enough schools or enough hospitals or enough credit or enough electrification or roads or infrastructure or something, or they can be internal so an in, in internal internal poverty traps can result from low aspirations um low levels of hope the general pessimism pessimism that any investment or any effort that i make isn't gonna isn't gonna pan out and sometimes those those internal those internal constraints can persist even after external constraints are released and they can be in and 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 they can be both individual. And they can be collective, and when you have internal constraints that are collective, maybe that's the hardest situation of them all, right? Where you have just a not just individuals believing that nothing good is possible, but when a whole society believes that about itself and reinforces everybody's belief that that nothing good ever happens here, right? And those are the most most difficult kinds of situations that that um, communities find themselves in.
1: So let me follow up on, on uh, two of those threads um, and ask you uh, um, about, about them a little bit more. So one thing, just just sort of in, in terms of the framing, when you talk about sort of individual kind of psychological constraints, uh, I feel like there's people who would say you're just kind of blaming the victim then, right? Because you're saying, oh, you could just get ahead if only, you know, you had, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and have faith in yourself and then you know, everything will be fine. And kind of, you know, to the extent that you emphasize that kind of uh, challenge, then maybe the it it steers you away from pursuing social solutions that might be more comprehensive. And and maybe, you know, for people who are who are let maybe feel less compassion, maybe gives an excuse to not feel as compassionate, if they feel like it's just because of the person having the wrong kind of attitude.
0: Wow. Yeah, you know, um, I think issues with mental health are more out of people's control than, than a lot of people think. Um, and that, um, that in fact, probably, probably people that are in cycles of poverty, they, they actually may have more, more control over those external factors than they have over the internal factors. These things, um, are not generally things that people have a lot of control over and, but that but there are things that can be i think that can be addressed through different types of accompaniment really kind of coming coming alongside people and encouraging them and showing them what's possible and that can change their their outlook and and with a changed outlook um with where aspirations are developed and there's and there's some degree of confidence that yeah if i undertake this kind of cuz development's all about investments right you know when we study development it's all about Different kinds of investments, whether it's in schooling, whether it's an investment in energy, whether I mean human energy, um, whether it's an investment of a microloan, whatever whatever it might be, they involve investments. And so, part of part of good development practice, I think, especially for for um, development organizations and practitioners that have a more holistic view of how human beings work, is to um, is to address those internal constraints along with addressing the external constraints. And that can often be done, um, through role modeling, um, through just general encouragement, through even just being there to listen to people's problems and help them, help them to, to articulate their problems and then, and then help, help them to find solutions to their own problems. So a lot of these things require, require a lot of careful investment of time and energy. Um, And, but I can, but I can say firsthand as a, also as a practitioner, as well as a researcher that that time that we spend listening and encouraging is, is probably just as important as, um, as some of the, the stuff that we do that relieves the external constraints, providing money for schools and, and credit and things like that.
1: No, that's a great point. That was being a little bit of a devil's advocate there, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, (laughs) kind of it, it sort of depends how you think about it. If you think about it as blaming the victim, then obviously that sounds not good. But if you think about, well, these people have, you know, uh, the situation they've been in is, you know, put them in a bad psychological state and there's, you know, things we could teach them about problem solving and, you know, ways to approach life that would help them get to a better state, um, then that's uh, that's really useful. And also, I mean, that, you know, the the other point you made about, you know, larger, so it's. You're certainly not saying these, th- these are things that you do in exclusion of larger social changes, but rather, um, you know, there may be a complementary element. I probably should have actually, in, in my intro you should have mentioned that, yeah, in addition to, uh, you know, researching economics and teaching economics, you also uh, are a development practitioner and you have, um, have your own nonprofit that you work with uh, down in Guatemala. You, you go there every summer, Right.
0: Yeah, we tried, except for during COVID, we we try to try to be go down at least every other year. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and we found even with, with the group of people that we work with in Guatemala, that it's possible to relieve external constraints, but that these internal constraints are still there a lot of times. Um, So for example, with this school that we, that we, um, that we fund in Guatemala, it's a middle school it's really hard to convince parents to keep their kids in school past sixth grade. (laughs) And Mm the school only costs, it, it costs 50 kids always a month, which is just like $8. And yet it's really hard to convince parents that a middle school education is worth the investment that their family needs to make in, in, in their kids. Um, And, yeah. And, so, and a, a lot of this is just like, we just don't think it'll pay off. It's just not worth the energy. It's better if they're working, working in, in, in the, with the coffee or working in construction or something like that. And, um, and so, so part of, part of what our teachers do who are down there is, is to try to open Open uh, the kind of the window a little bit for for some of these parents to help them to keep their kids to sort of realize a vision for what this could mean for their family if if their kids go to middle school and then high school and then and then gosh maybe even some of our kids kids even go to to university they're some of the first kids to go to university in the village so um, but but yeah that even when these external constraints are released the internal constraints can remain. And so they they have to be addressed as well. Otherwise, like just relieving the external constraint may not may not realize um, a, v- a very big result.
1: Right, and I guess and also I think you know your your personal experience there and, and something we also uh, emphasize for for our master's students of like actually getting you know in the country, being with the people, and like you said, learning to identify with them, you know, sort of empathize with them on various levels, and understand you know how the world looks to them. I think is a a really important thing that i think it's uh you know often there's the accusation for economists you know often often justified especially outside of job economics that we sort of you know take a bunch of numbers and like do do some magic on them and then tell to try to tell everyone what's what but there's i think to uh you know to to ask the right questions and to understand how to interpret the results um in addition to you know the statistics and all the analytical tools we have which are very valuable just like kind of having that sense on the ground of like, what's, what's really going on um, uh, is really crucial.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I totally agree. Um, I I think it's been, I think it's one of the reasons that, that I've been so um, excited about behavioral development economics, because it tends to look at people as they truly are right. And not how they would operate in this, kind of, um, semi fictitious neoclassical world that we think people should operate in if they're rational. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but because sometimes people make what we think would be irrational decisions, but then when you probe farther and farther and you get into the psychology of things and, and the, and the social psychology of things, you, you see that like most decisions that people are people or make almost every decision that somebody makes, whether they're poor or rich is rational from their perspective, right? From their point of view. And so, so I think part of being a development economist is, is trying to get trying to understand how people actually think about problems and then, and then proposing interventions that are, that, that are consistent with a more holistic view of human beings um, that takes into account things like identity, Um, and, and things like hope and aspirations and, and other things that economists, other, other places that economists never really have gone, gone before, like, you know, the last like five or 10 years, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So,
1: so why don't we move now to uh, sort of the third part of your book, you talk about um, how to, uh, you know, like you said, like does microcredit work and these kinds of questions, which um, I think is, you know, is valuable for people, both as a, as an overview of kind of where the academic literature stands on some things which in some cases you know people got really excited about but then once we tried to find out if they actually worked the evidence was not so clear Um, and uh so so both in terms of surveying this literature but also in terms of i think i think it's useful especially for for non-economists to understand like just what this framework is about and what are what are the academics trying to do um, and trying to take into account as they uh study these topics so um, why don't you walk us through the, um, the framework that you give for evaluating interventions and then talk maybe about, um, you know, a couple of the ones, uh, that you've worked on, um, you know, some of which you found that really didn't, the intervention was very helpful in, others, uh, where you found that, you know, there was intervention that sounded really nice and had a lot of support among well-meaning Americans, but didn't really, uh, have the effect that it was uh, supposed to.
0: Yeah, sure. So, so I, I use this as, as at least as one of the metrics for evaluating development interventions, um, a lot of people have heard the kind of bang for the buck, right? Which is sort of the typical way that we, that we, that we think about um, whether we should, whether we should do something like microcredit or education or a health intervention. And, and I use this, um, I use this other metric called bang three, which is bang for the bang for the buck, um, which is, which, Really puts in this intermediate step into into our the way that we think about whether an intervention is a, is is actually having a positive effect. So one so one question is like whether whether something has an effect. Like um, maybe maybe we're concerned with entrepreneurial activity. So we we say does microcredit lending does it stimulate entrepreneurial activity? Okay, and let's suppose it does that. But then there's this intermediate step. Um, which is like how much does increased entrepreneurial activity promote human flourishing? So, so in the framework that I use, I use, um, I use a friend that, that um, an idea in, um, in Catholic teaching call, um, that's, that's related to human dignity and human flourishing. Right. So, so there's this idea in, in human dignity that um, that's, that's been been, really well articulated by a lot of um, Catholic theologians and development people, which is, which is that every person bears this, um, this mark of, of God, this image of God called the imago Dei is the Latin term for it. And, um, and that human beings were, um, are intended to flourish in every human being, right. And, and in some way reflect um, the nature of the creator. And so the question is like, How much does a certain intervention like, like say, you know, when we get down to practical things like microcredit, it will, it will produce an outcome like entrepreneurship or something like that. But then the the intermediate question is how much does that, how much does that particular outcome affect human flourishing? Okay. And then, and then the question then is like, so how much human flourishing can we, um, can we promote? For a unit of resources that we put into a particular intervention. Right. So I call that I call that bang three or bang for the bang for the buck. And um and so let's maybe would you like to talk about microcredit? Yeah. Just for um, a little bit so since I we're think, on that.
1: Yeah, sure. Let's let's talk about microcredit. So let me just sort of summarize to make sure I get it, because it took me a couple of reads to, to fully get what you were trying to yeah. say with this one. So I think to to maybe put into like the framework economists or economic students might be familiar with, the sort of effectiveness is kind of like whether you have, you know, statistically significant results. So something's happening and it's really Uh happening. And then I guess sort of the first level of cost effectiveness is, you know, whatever it is we're trying to do, like we're trying to get rid of, you know, worms and kids like, you know, okay, we have, you know, economists, I think, and a lot of statisticians, we sort of, or social scientists at first, we fell in love with stats. And so once we kind of spent several Decades just thinking if something's statistically significant, that's enough. And I think over the past 20 years or so, people have come back to realizing, look, well, if it's statistically significant, but really small, then maybe it's not enough. And so <laughs> that's kind of the next stage to say, what is the economic impact of this intervention or the substantive significance of it? Um, but, and, and then I think you're then taking it the next step of saying, you know, well, if we have, you know, the, we may have something that's very effective in fixing some thing, but if that thing is, is very tiny and not like a major component of, as you said, like human flourishing, like what we want people to have in their lives, then, you know, maybe it's not that important after all. Maybe at least it wouldn't necessarily be not, not a waste of money, but maybe not the, not the best use of, of time and resources um, if, it's, if it's not sort of central to, um, say, the, the problems that they're having or the reasons they're in a poverty trap and so
0: forth. Yeah. Yeah. That, that That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think you put it really well. I, um, I think early on when people were doing impact evaluations, as, as soon as they saw something become statistically significant, oh, that, that creates like a, um, that, that creates, creates a prescription for policy or something. And, and what I'm, what I would argue is that, yeah, even like, and I think you broke it down even further, you might have something that's statistically significant, but it's like a really large sample size with, with small confidence intervals. And, but yet the effect is really small, (laughs) even though it's statistically significant. Um, but even if you have an outcome that's, that's, um, that's actually really, that's actually really big, right. Um, you know, maybe, um, maybe you might have some health, uh, you might have some kind of health problem where a medicine is really effective and it's great, but it really isn't, it not a, a super serious health problem uh, it isn't a super serious health pro- problem and so it might not really increase human flourishing that much and maybe if it's a very very expensive or very um, time consuming intervention, you might say yeah, it's effective but um, but yeah this would sort of go like this next step to say like to say how much how much does it really promote human flourishing So anyway that's just that's yeah that's the basic basic um, conceptual framework. That that I'm using. So for something like microcredit, um, and and I think the microcredit literature is very is is very interesting because um, as somebody who did micro study microcredit for for his dissertation um, twenty five years ago, um, you know back then we thought of microcredit as being the silver bullet that um, that that would would alleviate poverty on this on this kind of very broad scale and so there was this this big initiative by the Clinton administration to expand microcredit to 100 million households by the year 2005 and believe it or not you know we almost got there i mean it was it, it i think it reached 100 million just maybe a year or two after that so um, absolutely. yeah it's uh, yeah i guess you know you got a someone got a Nobel prize for it so it must be good hey
1: So, yeah. So tell us about microcredit. So it sounds really great. People got really excited about it, but um, what did the evidence really show once we dug into it?
0: Yeah, people were really excited about it. Um, 25 years ago, I was doing my dissertation um, on microcredit and um, (laughs) it's one of those things that... um, that was supported by everybody. I mean, it was supported by people on the left because they love the idea of kind of trickle up rather than trickle down and empowering women and artisans. Like 80% of micro microcredit loans are given to women around the world. So people on the left supported it. And then people on the right, more conservative folks supported it too because it promoted capitalism and didn't require big subsidies and help people lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. So it was like, it was one of those interventions that had that had this had support across the spectrum really and maybe the only doubters were people who were actually kind of doing research on it and trying and, and who who weren't disparaging it but were just trying to actually figure out whether it worked or not and so so starting about um 6 or 7 years ago there were a bunch of fairly large randomized controlled trials that were run on the effectiveness of microcredit and Essentially what we learned from that, at least from those trials, that it's a little more nuanced than even these, these early trials suggest, but, but that microcredit tends to really benefit about maybe 15% of the people that it helps. Um, it generally promotes entrepreneurialism, which, which we think is a good thing because it draws labor out of the labor market and that puts upward pressure on wages, which is great, um, And to the extent that we think entrepreneurialism is a good thing, that's great too. Although not many of these enterprises at all expand beyond just a few employees. And that's something that's really important to understand about microcredit is that if we give loans to microcredit through something like Kiva, for example, it's very, very, we can't think of. Um, we can't think of micro entrepreneurs as like the, the Henry Ford's Bill Gates and Steve jobs of, of the world. It, it's, it's not really like that um, in poor economics, the and Banerjee talk a lot about, about um, people with micro enterprises as almost kind of reluctant entrepreneurs. So, so um, a worthy goal of, of micro credit is really just to help enterprises thrive as best they can so that parents have enough money to and money and um, and the capability to allow the next generation probably of kids to become educated and um, and move into higher paying higher paying work. But we don't see, I mean in short, the result the results of the of the randomized trials on microcredit, they don't show, Big increases in overall household income. People tend to, when they take microloans, they they pull themselves out of the labor market and focus on their their microenterprise. But the gain in enterprise income that they get is generally offset by their loss in wage income. Hmm. So, but but it's not a bad intervention. Microcredit. Um, it, um, it, it does some things very well. I mean, in terms of like promoting entre- entrepreneurialism, stabilizing incomes. So microloans do a good job at, at helping people through difficult times. And there's actually some more evidence that came out kind of post-randomized trials on microcredit that actually point to the fact that, it, that if a lot of people have microloans in the economy it may be doing some good things for the macroeconomy as a whole pushing up wages and different and different things so there's this um there was this really neat study done by Emily Brazen and Cynthia, Cynthia Kinnan that looked at what happens when you take away microcredit just completely out of out of the microenterprise sector which happened in, one, in in one state in India um, for a while and where they the government basically just shut microcredit down for for some for some different reasons over indebtedness and and information systems and different things. and they found that when that happened it was not good for the economy right so sometimes sometimes you don't know how good something is until you lose it and that may be kind of the case with microfinance where when when you took it away, wages fell, incomes fell, right and um, so that was a natural experiment. That maybe tells us a little more about the impact of microcredit than even some of the randomized controlled trials. And I actually have some issues with the randomized controlled trials as well, because what they're doing is they're, they're setting up an experiment on kind of marginal borrowers. Most of them were done in places where there was already a lot of micro lending already. And so you're giving credit to people that were probably just you know, maybe not the sort of grade AAA borrowers in, in, in the economy. And so the fact that impacts are kind of low in some of those trials, isn't that surprising. And in the places where they did do the randomized controlled trial in an area where there wasn't a lot of microcredit, the impacts they found were bigger. So, um, so overall microcredit is, is just, I I think I, I gave it a a four stars out of five um, because of the more recent uh, natural experiments that show that it has a bigger impact, but it's not, I, it's not the silver bullet that we thought it was, Peter, I, w- I would say um, yet it can be a very helpful intervention, especially for like the most um, entrepreneurial, the top 10 or 15% most entrepreneurial borrowers. It probably does have some kind of positive impact.
1: Right. And, and then studies you mentioned, I think it's a nice illustration of like, you know as you said like randomized controlled trials are you know they're very precise at measuring whatever is they're measuring but then you know uh one thing is you know sometimes they an intervention in a sense the best interventions might have a social effect that goes beyond the the individual or even the small community being treated um like you're saying um might have come out from sort of the the large scale, um, introduction of microfinance, uh, you know, pulling people into entrepreneurship and therefore letting the rest of the people have higher wages because there's less, uh, less labor supply. Um, Mm -hmm. and then also, as you said, like if you're, you know, it depends with any treatment, right. You know, even with a medicine, right. You don't, if you you give a medicine to the sickest person, then it's going to have one effect. If you give it to a healthy person that might not be good at all. And, you know, there's kind of going to be some kind of continuum there. So you want to make sure that you're looking at the right people, but by gathering all this data and, you know, being precise about what each of our studies does, it sort of also opens us up to, you know, figuring out how to refine, um, you know, not just evaluate like, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down on a, an intervention, but also figure out how to uh, really target it and make it more effective.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think with with microcredit, it's the um, the heterogeneous treatment effects are really, really important there because we do see this, this pretty big. Um, a lot. Some of uh, Esther DeFlo and Abhijit Banerjee's work with their co-authors show this pretty pretty significant impact among what they call like the go-getter entrepreneurs. And the question is just how to how to target those guys better, right? Because because there there really does seem to be an impact among that sort of subset of the population. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe that sort of relates
1: to what you're talking about in general. Sort of then, how do we get other people to? maybe become go-getters who, who, who weren't, um, beforehand.
0: Right, um, right.
1: Why don't you tell us, um, about one more study? I know some of the ones you've worked on since then you looked at, um, child sponsorship, shoe donations, um, cleft surgery. I uh, want you to just pick one, one more and talk about how, how you um, did that study and how you sort of evaluate it.
0: Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll talk about, um, international child sponsorship, um, because that's one of the ones I've been involved in, in more over the last last few years. Um, so, So international child sponsorship is, is um, often we see these ads in magazines or on, on TV or something where for like $35 a month, you can sponsor a child. Um, And then what the child receives is generally some kind of, um, some kind of food assistance for their family, um, school uniform. Often they pay um, school tuition. In the one that I evaluated with Compassion International, they, um, they got to go for about ten hours a week to an after-school tutoring program that emphasized tutoring um, activities with kids and also Christian faith formation. So those so those three things, and and they also they provided the kids nutritious meals there as as well. And they go there for a long time. So kids start when they're like five years old, and um, and often are part of this after-school program until they're like. 18 or like finished secondary school and the way we evaluated it, you can't, you can't run experiments very well with stuff like this. Um, so we did a quasi experimental study where we used, um, the fact that when, when compassion was rolling out a bunch of programs in the 1980s the different villages in, in, um, low income countries, they had an age eligibility rule that said that only kids under 12 could be part of the program, and they're actually pretty strict about about that rule, which, which as you know, is kind of like a gold. It's just like a gold nugget for <laughs> for an empirical researcher, just finding some crazy arbit- I mean, it's not crazy, but it's just some arbitrary cutoff rule mm-hmm. that um, that you can use to evaluate the um, the program. And so, so we use this rule and surveyed. We we dug up the early enrollment lists of um, of these programs. Usually, they were. These dot matrix printouts in a cardboard box in some moldy basement in you know in Cochabamba, Bolivia. You know, so we we found these early enrollment lists of the first kids that were in that particular project, and then um, and then we contracted with the village busybody to who knows everybody's name and and all all, all everything about everybody. Um, to actually locate the parents of these kids. And then we interviewed the parents about all of the life outcomes for their children, including the ones that happen to be age eligible to be sponsored by this, by this compassion program. And, um, and so these guys were all grown up now. They're in their twenties, thirties, and even like forties in some cases. And what we found was that the impacts on educational completion were just kind of, um, kind of amazing. I mean, it was about a, about a 45% increase probability of graduating from secondary school. Um, they had about a 35% chance higher, uh, 35% higher probability of having a white collar job, um, much more likely to be employed in general, um, especially among the women, there's just much greater labor force participation among, among, um, among the, the girls that had graduated and, and were now women working in the labor force. Many had become teachers. That was probably the most common occupation. Um, we estimated that income was about, um, is about 20% higher, 20% higher income. Um, somewhere the average is about $75 a month. And then the impact was about roughly like $15 to $18. Per per month on on income, they lived in better houses, houses made out of higher quality construction materials, more likely to be electrified, more likely to be village and community leaders. So anyway, using using this quasi experimental method, we found we found really big impacts on the life outcomes of these kids. And what was what was interesting about this program? It was it's it's a very holistically oriented program. And for me, studying the outcomes of this program that worked at so many levels with the kids. It worked on their, on their social skills, on their, um, on their, just even issues of just self-control and attentiveness, developing their aspirations for what they want to do. Um, many, many different aspects of their, of their lives. And, um, and for me, it was, it, 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 because, and it was also, the the results were congruent with some other programs that had been done by people at the Jameel Poverty Action Lab and other places that looked at at um programs that emphasized multiple interventions with households or with children that um that realized larger results and and I guess what it taught me was was that many times you can't just address one thing like education or nutrition but that a holistically based intervention has a greater probability of being successful because you're relieving multiple constraints with children or households.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? If it was just one thing going wrong, then, then it'd probably be a lot easier to fix. Um, and a lot of these things, you know, they kind of go together. It's hard to pay attention at school if you don't have enough food to eat and, and, you know, and more and yeah. more complex interactions as well. I guess how yeah. do you uh, the challenge there? I guess is what if you know then if you evaluate something that's like a package of a whole bunch of stuff, all of which sounds nice. Then how do you know what what part of that is really essential?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's really hard too because a, a, a lot of NGOs that I've worked with, they kind of feel like they have the secret sauce and they don't want to mess with it. Um, they don't want to take out one thing or two things um, because they have, at least they feel like they have good reason to think that all of the things that they're doing are, are, um, necessary, but not sufficient. I mean, to put it in sort of like econ speak. Um, so, so many times it's hard, it's, it's difficult to do that. I think, I think some researchers at j have tried to do that, to try to pull out different elements of programs and, and see which elements are the most vital. I think the, I think the thing to understand though is that conceptually there there's a good reason why you might want to intervene at a lot of different levels like education health uh income like me with a cash grant or something enterprise there're good reasons to believe that you should want to do that right and for just the exact reason that you gave it's it's like suppose you intervene at every Every level other than nutrition, right? So compassion ran their program, but they did everything except provide kids nutritious meals. Well, then, how are they going to learn if they're not being well nourished at home, right? And so, so it may be better to relieve multiple constraints. If you have a give, you know, X amount of resources, it may may be better to use X in many cases to relieve multiple constraints a little bit, rather than to focus all of it on relieving one constraint where others are still binding, right? And and keeping the person essentially in the same place that they were before.
1: Well, that definitely seems like it goes against a little bit, sort of the, the idea of, you know, having very measurable outcomes. Like, you know, if we figure out that whatever deworming or mosquito nets, like this definitely works, let's just get, you know, let's get Bill Gates to put a lot of money in this because this for sure works and it's not going to be wasted versus like this kind of holistic thing. Like, I guess the extreme was... Actually, I haven't followed this for a while, but like Jeff Sachs had this group of like model villages in that he was right. working on where he tried to like fix everything at once with a whole bunch of resources. And but then it's kind of like, is it just having a whole bunch of resources or or what part of this is really
0: crucial? Right, right. No, that, that that's true. And so and so that 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 means that it's important to test in 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 a lot of experimental work to test one thing at a time, right? Um, I think what's harder is, is getting, uh, getting many, um, NGOs and probably particularly faith-based NGOs to, um, to alter their menu or not, not really the menu, but kind of alter the package of, of interventions that they, that they give. Um, but certain things, I mean, you, you would say like, um, like you mentioned deworming, deworming. In a worm in, in a heavily worm infested area is just one thing that we know that's incredibly effective, um, right? I mean, you see this like this twenty year follow up by Miguel and Kramer, on um, and Sarah Baird, I, I think, is another co author on it on on the deworming that they did in the late nineties, where they're seeing cognitive differences now among thirty year olds <laughs> from mm-hmm. from just being dewormed two years two years earlier than the kids in the other school mm-hmm. right and and so so there there's certain single interventions that are just super effective like in the right in the right context but um, but even then like we we want to you know we, we we probably need to understand that even if that were the only intervention that those kids received if there if there hadn't been some kind of intervention even just just even the local public school for example that um, that you might have health, healthier, um, adults with higher cognitive ability, but still, um, without education or without some infrastructure or some other things, they still might be mired in poverty, right? You might have healthier people that were still living in poverty. So, so, um, so yeah, so I think uh, addressing interventions on addressing poverty on multiple fronts, um, is, uh is critically important. And even though the model, there wasn't solid evidence from those model villages, I think the, the spirit of the thing was in the right place. Mm
1: -hmm. All right. So um, in in the last few minutes, why don't you um, talk about kind of the, your part four. So how do you become a shrewd Samaritan? What are, you know, obviously uh, some people want to come PhD development economists, but uh, you know, that's not the path for everyone. So what what are all the other uh, different roles that people who, Um, you know, want to, you know, with whatever resources and and they have um, make a positive contribution, what are are the roles that people can play?
0: Yeah, sure. So, so I talk about, I talk about in, in chapter 11 in the book, kind of toward the end, I talk about different roles that people can play. Um, So, so one of them are, is, is the role of an investigator. That would be people like, people like you and me that are, um, that are trying to understand better ways to implement poverty interventions and understanding policy, and even, even just, um, investigating how to motivate people to give more things or, or things like that, um, can be, can be a great way to have an effect on global poverty. Um, another, another, um, another vocation or role that people can play is just as, as a giver. So, so, and this isn't just income, right? It could be, could be that somebody is just blessed by being in a family that, um, that, that has a lot of financial resources, but it it also can be time too, right? So some people are natural givers. And I give some examples of, of those kinds of, those kinds of folks in the book. Um, one, another one is, um, advocates. So these are people that, um, they may have done under undergrad degrees in, um, in fields like sociology or, um, or political science, or maybe somebody has a law degree, maybe they're an attorney or something. But somebody that that um, that essentially calls attention to a specific community or is kind of standing up for their rights in in different ways, kind of rep giving giving the poor a voice, um, mm-hmm. would be the role of an advocate. Another role is is that of a creator. So there's some people that are just naturally entrepreneurial, right? And and um, and so you have. People people today that are innovating, um, that are social entrepreneurs and that are inter- innovating social businesses, like businesses that have a double bottom line that um, are not only meant to be at least borderline profitable, but also are having social impact in some, in some kind of way, either through the nature of their product or how they produce it or um, the kinds of people that they hire in their firms. Um, another, another role is that of a director. So um, a lot of times these people are undersold uh, kind of administrators that they're, they're kind of undercredited, but boy, having people that are good administrators in, in, uh, in development organizations is super, super important. And, and I give some examples of that. And the last one is practitioners. So people who are actually interfacing with the poor. So these could be teachers, they could be public health workers, they could be agronomists. Um, they're people that are, Are actually face-to-face with the poor and um there could be people that are that are just um accompanying people like refugees for example um that are coming to a host a host country but um but these these are these would be the kind of folks that are just really really energized about um about coming alongside people and and in very very kind of practical ways offering a helping hand in different ways um And so people have different gifts and different, um, and different talents. And so that, 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 um, that fifth eye, the introspection eye is really, um, a lot of that is about just, just understanding and discerning one's, one's role in, um, in loving our global neighbor and, and being able to identify with the poor.
1: Okay. Well, that's a great note to end end on. Um, again, uh, this is, Bruce Weidick, we were talking about his book, Shrewd Samaritan, Faith, Economics, and the Road to Loving Our Global Neighbor. And I hope we can all uh, do a better job um, at that.